So this is the magic sauce of raising money. Um, I've raised over a hundred million dollars in my career. And uh, I think that puts me on the top 2% of women in the world who have done that. And I'm, and I'm proud of that. But what's interesting about raising money is that if there's an energy behind it. And, and I believe that the universe is run on energy. Um, you know, if you connect the frequency with the reality of what you want to achieve, you cannot help but achieve that reality. And that's not philosophy, that's physics. It's about the law of action. So I believe that if you walk into a room and you really love what you do and you're passionate about it, you know, people in the room are gonna pick up on your energy. They're gonna pick up on your passion and they're gonna pick up on your determination. And that's very exciting to an entrepreneur. I mean, to an investor, because they're gonna to wanna to, to give you money. Because really, you know, startups are about you. In the beginning, they're not investing in, you know, the idea. Of course, they're investing in the idea, but I mean, they're really investing in the team. So you, you, you are the person, you, the CEO, who's gonna make this happen. And, um, you have to go in there confident, but not arrogant. First of all, welcome again. And uh, it's, it's really great to have you over. And you know, Joy, we've had so many entrepreneurs uh, come up here um, and many of my friends from the ecosystem. One thing that everyone talks about is funding uh, these days, right? And, uh, and, and you have aced it. But we'll get to that a little later in the episode. I would first like to start off by talking about your childhood entrepreneurship stories. And uh, I've heard you talk a lot about the DNA, the mindset of a serial entrepreneur that uh, uh, that you've mentioned. So um, why don't you tell us a bit more about uh, how how was that mindset built while growing up and, and uh, how did you really nurture that entrepreneur within yourself? Well, I think the mindset of an entrepreneur is really somebody who can be punched in the face and get back up again. Because being an entrepreneur is about rejection. I mean, when people ask me, what, it, what is it like being an entrepreneur? It's about being rejected. So I think it's, it's harder in today's day and age than it ever was because people today don't like being rejected. They're, the Instagram and the TikToks and the, the Facebook has made it so need to be perfect. Like our entire image is what other people think of us. How many likes we get, the views we get, how many followers do we have? And I think this day age, the mindset is more concerned about what the outside world thinks of you rather than what you think of yourself. And being an entrepreneur is really about it's really about, you know, people ask me all the time, like, what's the secret sauce about being an entrepreneur? And the secret sauce is not caring what someone thinks about you. It's about caring what you think about yourself. Because if you're somebody who takes rejection really personally, right? If you're, if you're the kind of person who puts a post on Instagram and you, and you didn't get any likes and that really ruins your day, well, then you're definitely not an entrepreneur because... It has to be somebody who's very thick-skinned. It has to be somebody who's almost little nuts because they're so determined. They're so focused and so determined that negativity has room in their lives. And that is really a mindset. That's really a 
personality, that's a character. Um, you know, and I think it's even harder in um, in 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 Arabic culture or Middle Eastern culture or Indian culture because you know we're always very concerned about what our families think, what our aunties think, what our um, you know uncles think, what you know what does the community think, you know. So we're really embedded in this mindset. So I think uh, it's harder for us, you know, with these with these people who have huge families, right? But you really have to be somebody who lives their life by the beat of their own drum. You really have to be somebody who just says, I don't care. That, I mean, you know, what anyone thinks. I, I am going to live life and I'm going to build this company because I believe in it. And it's, and it's a dream. And there's nothing that somebody's going to say that it's going to deter me. I mean, if you look at all the companies that succeeded, they were all on the brink of failure. But it was just that one extra push that got funding. It was that one last effort. So you have to have the mindset that you can never give up. Never give up. Never take, you know, what anyone says about your company personally. I I I remember people telling me, well, this is a dumb idea. That's not gonna work. And you know, if you're the kind of person who's like, oh my God, to go home and rethink your whole position. Then, then you got no business being an entrepreneur. So I, I adopted a really great saying, which is when when you are when you walk into a room and you don't care what somebody thinks of, then you're the most powerful person in the room because nobody can make you feel inferior without your consent. And to me, that is really the secret of being an entrepreneur. Now, it's not about not improving and 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 list, you know, ever-changing improvement and ever-changing, you know, constant working on, on, on bettering your idea. But it's, that is important. You can't be somebody that doesn't listen. You have to listen, but, and, 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 you know, take it with a grain of salt, look at what you have, but you have to listen, but not take it to heart. You have to look at it like, okay, they had something to say. Let me see if I can better my company because of it. Not, oh my God, they said that it's not going to work and I can't raise any money. So this is the magic sauce of raising money. Um, I've raised over $100 million in my career. And uh, I think that puts me on the top 2% of women in the world who have done that. And I'm, and I'm proud of that. But what's interesting about raising money is that if there's an energy behind it. And, and I believe that the universe is run on energy. Um, you know, if you connect the frequency with the reality of what you want to achieve, you cannot help but achieve that reality. And that's not philosophy, that's physics. It's about the law of action. So I believe that if you walk into a room and you really love what you do and you're passionate about it, you know, people in the room are going to pick up on your energy. They're going to pick up on your passion and they're going to pick up on your determination. And that's very exciting to an entrepreneur. I mean, to an investor, because they're going to want to, they want to give you money because really, you know, startups are about you in the beginning. They're not investing in, you know, the idea. Of course, they're investing in the idea, but I mean, they're really investing in the team. So you, you, you are the person, you, the CEO, who's going to make this happen. And um, you have to go in there confident, but not arrogant.
the 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 investors hate arrogance. Um, if you walk in there like you know this is what I think my company should be valued at, and this is what I think you know you have to go in there very humbly and 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 confident. So that's really the magic: humble and confident and determined. That's that's brilliant. Also, uh, the other day I was reading about this. Uh... This effect, and since you since you talked about uh, confidence, not not arrogance, and and the whole um, funding spree that has been happening across across Asia, and, and I'm sure that uh, you're aware of that. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of uh, early stage founders, and first time founders uh, really find themselves uh, confused about what really is the is the secret sauce. Uh, behind raising money and uh, I mean uh, a woman entrepreneur in the Middle East having raised over a hundred million dollars and um, your journey has been has been inspiring so um, when you think about um, your first venture and having raised money for the first time uh, how has this whole journey over a period of time having raised funds at, at various stages, how has it really evolved? So were you, were you that confident when you went on to raise money for the first time? How, how, how have things really shaped up? Um, yeah, I was, I was confident from the first day. I was, for sure. Um, look, I believed in what I was doing. And there wasn't anything that it was going to say that wasn't going to make me believe in it. But one of the biggest problems that I see with a lot of startups that I help is that there is a really big confusion between the word startup and SMEs. So there's a difference between a small and medium-sized business and a startup. A lot of your, your entrepreneurs out there, right? They think they're entrepreneurs, but they're really not. They're, they're small and medium-sized businesses. And let me explain the difference. When you look at a startup company, and you're raising money from the venture capitalists. You have to understand that venture capitalists are not giving you their money. They raise the money as well. So they were out pitching for money. And when they were out pitching for money, they were raising the money to invest in entrepreneurs to return investment to their LPs. LPs are called limited partners. They're just people who invest in fund. That's, that's the word they used, it's called LPs. So the question that you ask yourself, are you a company that is going to be exiting in three to five years? And a lot of people don't understand what that means. So what does exit mean? Is who's going to buy your company in three to five years? Because the only way that the investors make money and return money to their investors, which are LPs, is by having an exit. And an exit is either two things. It's either your company is bought in a merger and acquisition or you IPO. Uh, IPOs are, are rare outside of the United States. So you really have to focus more on a merger and acquisition. And you have to ask yourself, if you're focusing on a merger and acquisition, who's gonna buy a company in three to five years? And the interesting part is that when I talk to a lot of startups and think about that, like it's something that doesn't even come to their mind, you know, you got to remember, people are giving you money to make money. <laughs> They're not giving you money for the sake of giving you money for your startup. So 
if you're not a company that can be bought in three to five years that somebody can acquire you, then you're a small to medium-sized business. And the difficult part is that the majority of these companies in the Middle East are not going to get acquired and they're not going to IPO because there is no IPO in the Middle East. The big IPOs are in the States. So, so quite frankly, you really have to think about that before you start pitching for money. And the ecosystems in, you know, for startups in India and in, in, in the Middle East are very young. You know, even the VCs themselves are still confused as to how are they going to make money? Because the majority of the money that they make right now is shares in a scary round. So if you get in on a seed, you sell your shares on a series A. And if you get on it, you know, and then you sell it in a B. But late stage investments are very tough to come by. And those are not done in the Middle East. They're done in the United States. Because those are the guys who have the big money to take you to a series B, C, D, E, you know, and beyond. That's, that's a really interesting perspective. And I mean, uh, the ecosystem, I, I believe, is really nascent. And now that I think of it, most of the Indian startups uh, that have IPO'd in, in the recent days, and there have been a couple of them that IPO'd uh, late last year, mm-hmm. uh, most of the late stage investors in those, uh, so probably series uh, D plus investors have been investors from the US um, or, or from China. Like those are, those are the two big well, India, India has a share of problems because it's not a unified country, you know, so each section has a different jurisdiction. That's, I mean, if India was all unified, you know, with the legality of it across the board, it would be a force to be reckoned with. Um, but that's the late stage, but, you know, a lot of people have tried in the United States to come into India. It's a very tough market to understand because it has a culture and a language all its own. I mean, I know that Amazon has been trying to break in there and they do, but it hasn't been easy. I mean, the regulation is-, is uh, Yeah, it is not an easy. It's not an easy, it's a challenge. I, I'm gonna use the word challenging. It's a challenging place. <laughs> Definitely. And I, I believe that is one of the reasons a lot of, uh, a lot of good founders have been setting up shop in the US uh, or in Singapore where regulations are a bit more relaxed and capital is a bit more accessible. Um, mm-hmm. Also, since we're talking about uh, ecosystems, uh, and, and since you've worked across mm-hmm. ecosystems, you started your first company in the US, uh, then you moved to the Middle East, and you started your second company over here, solving a very, very critical problem back in 2013. Um, so can you, can you help us with a little bit more of your story around uh, your first company, Bonfair, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and the second company, Fetcher? And how has, uh, I mean, what really drew you to post-fashion? What really drew you to logistics? Well, actually the story had flowed. So I'll tell you, uh, we built an e-commerce platform for undiscovered goods. So we were a pre-order. We were basically, we created a technology platform for storytelling to create, it was really a marketing play than anything. It was a Basically what Instagram is today is kind of what we were 10 years ago. We were Instagram before Instagram was Instagram. You know, the storytelling to sell product. That was really, really what our brand was about. 
And when we got acquired, uh, it was acquired. What was acquired was the was the technology. That's what they wanted when the acquisition went through. Is the storytelling technology? So, um, you know, part of my brand strategy in the day when we were in San Francisco, and uh, was to reach emerging markets because emerging markets. Uh, we're an untapped frontier for e-commerce and growth. So the interesting part is that when I started sending packages to the Middle East and India and Russia, they all came back with a, with a note saying, I'm sorry, we couldn't deliver it. And I'm like, what do you mean you couldn't deliver it? Because in the United States, you know, you have a mailman that comes to your door and he drops off a package every day. Um, so, and you know him by name and he's the same guy and he knows because there's grids, there's addresses. So I think what happened was, is we had difficulty uh, back in the day with the, my first company, Bon Fair, delivering packages because of the address problem. So after I sold my first company, Bon Fair, during an acquisition deal to Moda Operandi, we um, had a bunch of entrepreneurs coming in from the Middle East looking for funding. And I was helping as a mentor because I am Palestinian. And when I was helping there as a mentor, um, I saw one of the, which is Fetcher, um, talking about solving the problem of no addresses in emerging markets. And of course, I loved the idea because I experienced it. I experienced it as an American in San Francisco. And I was like, well, okay, um, love the idea. So we got to talking and we decided to partner up. And uh, we closed 11 million in our series A uh, with NEA, which is the top, one of the top VCs in Silicon Valley, NEA, Sequoia, these are the top, top guys, Excel. So uh, that was a big news story 10 years ago. It was their first investment in the Middle East. And um, we went on after that to raise 42 million in our series B, it was the largest series B at the time. And uh, of course, after that, we did a lot of uh, other fundraising up to a hundred million um, when I exited uh, about three years ago. So that's the story. So it kind of had a, a reason because I understood the problem because I experienced yeah. it from shipping goods uh, to, to the, you know, to, uh, uh, to uh, the large the states. Middle East yeah. and India and Russia and, and emerging. Yeah markets, although I wouldn't call Russia an emerging market. So <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Just to have a, uh, I mean, I was just wondering, uh, Joyce, since you've raised uh, money from so many different VCs, like tier A VCs, what is the most counterintuitive, um, the, the most counterintuitive thing that you came across while fundraising that not a lot of uh, people really know about or have it wrong? Other than uh... um, I think I think the the decks are overkill. Um, I think in early stage everybody puts in all these like statistics and I think the deck needs to be concise and I think you need to have your new proposition done in the first two pages. You need to you need to make sure that you under you get trying to do in the first two pages. Because if, if you don't, I mean, I've seen so many decks that I've read and I finished the whole deck and I'm like, I have no idea what you do. 
So I think the problem, the problem with fundraising is that the majority of the founders that I see are not good storytellers. Hmm. Because raising money in the beginning is about storytelling. And also since you've raised money at different stages, right? So, um, uh, I mean, I understand at later stages, it get it, it becomes a lot more about metrics and, and what has the company achieved over the last, uh, whatever, X number of months. And yeah. also a lot the more about- is, is all about- Yeah, yeah. And also I, I believe seed it is- It's also a lot yeah, about the, the team, right? Series A. Yeah, seed and Series A is the team and mm -hmm. the and the store, um, you know, and the deck and pitching, uh, and of course the market size. You know, is this a valuable business and is it a VC backed business or an SME? But after Series A, it's metrics. Right. It's really finance that takes over because then you don't have to prove concept and whether it's working. Then it's just about money for growth. Right, right, right. Right. Also, also, how 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 do these team dynamics in fast growing startups how how do they really operate? Because initially, when you're really focusing on the right set of team, uh, you're looking for, like you said, you're looking for that crazy in that person, the person who can get get things done. So that person might be a great fit for taking things from zero to one. But do you think there's a different kind of a skill set that's needed for taking things from one to hundred, and is that why is that the reason why a lot of founders uh, take a step back when um, the startups really mature and they bring in outside talent? Do you think that's that's one of the reasons? Um, look, I think it's a lot of startups are about culture, right? I think in the beginning the culture is easy to do, but as you grow the company. How do you maintain that culture by hiring more and more people outside to build your company? Um, culture is important. It attracts talent. It creates a brand. It, it, it gives the company a sense of, of camaraderie, vision, uh, leadership, voice. And it, you know, people go to work, they want to be happy where they work. And um, when you start hiring people from outside, you may lose a little bit of that. And that's the hard part because great companies um, have, have really great culture, like Amazon, right? They've got incredible, right? Apple has incredible culture. I think great companies need to hire people who believe in what you do and have the same mindset. Skill set is different. I'm talking mindset. Also, um, because there are some people, there are some mm. people who are not entrepreneurial in their spirit. There are some people who just want to get a paycheck. Yeah. You know, there are some people who are, you know, so really you have to be the kind of person who's getting equity, who believes that you're willing to work for the, for that, for that exit. Right. So you're willing to make sacrifices uh, and take less salary for more equity to, to work towards that vision. But that's not for everybody. There are some people who would rather work in corporate America and get a bigger paycheck. So it really depends on you, your risk, mm. you know, your risk for appetite or single 
who could take more risk? Are you a married person with children where you need bills to pay? So it just, it just depends. Hmm. Also, uh, but people sincere... are definitely the hardest thing. Managing, managing people is probably the most hardest thing in any company. If you look at any company that succeeds, I will tell you that it is a strong middle management that makes a company successful. You, you talked about culture, right? Um, and you talked about Apple. So, um, and I, I remember having this conversation with um, one of our professors back in B school. A lot of people who worked with Steve Jobs back in, um, back in the 90s, uh, uh, early 2000s, say that he was a really tough person to work with. But, but that's, that's how the, the culture of Apple was. And um, now uh, Tim Cook has, has completely- well, keep, in mind, keep in mind, keep in mind, Silicon Valley is fluffy. So, you know, anytime somebody raises their voice, it's offensive. Anytime somebody has something to say that's not of your opinion, it's offensive. You, you know, Silicon Valley is very like fluffy. I use the word fluffy. It's American, right? We have laws and regulations, right? So it's, it's, it's a different mindset, but Steve Jobs had a vision uh, and he didn't give a damn what anyone thought. Um, so, you know, was he a jerk? Probably. Um, I mean, I didn't know him, so I can't make that assessment, but that was his reputation. Um, but at the end of the day, he had a vision and he did not care what anyone had to say. And he was right. So, um, you know, sometimes, you know, I think he said it best. If I wanted to make everyone happy, I would have opened an ice cream store. <laughs> yeah. You know, that goes back to the philosophy of uh, not caring what people, you know, not, not that you don't care, but, you know, you can't have everybody tell you same story you you have to be determined right yeah but you're never in a position of power you're never going to have everyone love you it's not a popularity contest makes a lot of sense also uh joy um you mentioned about how you really connected the dots and um you identified a problem when you when you saw Fetcher as a product solving a particular problem, you could quickly connect and say that, hey, I, I have experienced it firsthand. But at the same time, um, you really needed to have your eyes and ears out there to identify that this is a problem worth solving. And so generally, whenever um, serial entrepreneurs start something, they have some sort of insight from what they had been doing earlier. Um, so my question is, how do you how do you really spot problems worth solving? How do you how do you develop that that sort of a knack for understanding the problems that are worth solving, the problems that are big enough, and the problems that are worth getting funded? Again, because as an entrepreneur, you want to get that exit, right? Well, you need to look. I mean, the best companies are companies that solve problems. Um, and, you know, so you have to, you have to see a problem and then you're like, wait a minute, uh, you know, mo most companies that are huge have, have had problems themselves. It's personal and they've solved them. So it's a personal problem, right? 
I don't like the way this is going. I think I can do this better. So it's really the everyday. It's really about the everyday, you know, like right now, FinTech is such a hot ticket, right? Everyone's talking about FinTech, which is, which is easy to understand because everybody has a problem with banks, right? Uh, getting your check cashed or getting your money in the bank. So FinTech right now is, is, is a problem that needs to be solved, right? I think, I think you just have to have the experience of it being a pain point for yourself. That makes a lot of sense. So, Joy, now coming to um, one of the one of the key topics that a lot of uh, founders would be uh, interested in when they hear about uh, you, which is the funding part. So, uh, since you've also been a, been an investor, I've heard some of your talks that you you've mentored startups, you invest in startups, um, and and most of it, I believe, is. Uh, early stage and uh, uh, series, series A seed funding. So essentially when you- Actually pre-seed, pre-seed seed. Yeah, early. Early stage, right. So uh, when you essentially look at startups and I, I, I see that a lot of founders who have successfully raised money, who have successfully exited businesses have started investing because I believe they really understand uh, spotting good entrepreneurs, right? So um, when you, when you think about picking the right set of entrepreneurs, apart from what you already mentioned, I, I believe you look for that crazy in the entrepreneur. But apart from that, what do you really, uh, how do you really assess a founder meeting them for the, for the, for the, for maybe like two or three times? I, 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 I like, I like to find founders that have opposite skill sets. You know, you don't need two marketing people. You don't need two CFOs. You don't need two people in the company who do the exact same thing. I find the best companies are founders that have opposite skill sets because they complement each other. I'm a believer in opposites attract, not in um, not in the same. Got it. Also, um, since you. Um, since you've invested in a few companies, you've mentored a few companies, uh, I believe some of them are also from the Middle East. So how do you see the Middle Eastern ecosystem? And especially, I believe that you also have been uh, speaking with, been associated with Microsoft for startups, uh, with a lot of these ecosystem players really coming in and um, creating that hype for the ecosystem. How do you see that, see that uh, uh, panning out? I, I, I mean, I think the ecosystem is still really new. I think, like I said early on, I think everybody is jumping in to invest in startups. But quite honestly, I think the majority of startups are SMEs. Hmm. They're not exited, exiting companies. I think, I think it's great, but I think there needs, I think the investors are definitely going to lose a lot of money because they're 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 investing in small businesses. They're not really, I mean, you know, they, their returns are not going to be what they want them to be because you need exits. Yeah. So I think there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a confusion between SMEs and, and, and startups. Awesome. So and uh, keep in mind, it's a new ecosystem, right? So they're still learning. These VCs are still learning. Yeah. 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 So Joy, um, to end the episode, um, we have, uh, sort of a rapid fire for you where we'll, uh, so just uh, throw some questions and whatever comes to your mind. Uh, so just to start off, uh, 
one no startup problem. one startup sector that really interests you and you really think is is the future um i think the hot ticket how to disrupt the state tech is is a great disruptor right now too uh, those two are probably, and I think uh, health tech, femtech um, is a hot ticket as well. I like femtech, I like health tech. I mean, femtech, edtech, not edtech, femtech, uh, fintech, and I like um, uh, real estate, anything that is disrupting the real estate market. Got it. One book that you go back to time and again. Hmm. One book that I go to back again. That's a really good question. I go, I go to, I shuffle through quite a bit. Um, probably the one book that I, that I, that I read and I go to, to the most is actually not a tech book. It's a book on philosophy. It's uh, Khalil Gibran's book. So I think uh, I go back to the prophet, which is probably the, the one that I have by my bed that I read um, because it's, it's philosophy. So I, I, like, I like the philosophy aspect of life. So that's my go-to book. It talks about uh, everything from marriage to children, to business, to hate, to death. So it's, it's definitely the prophet by Khalil Gibran. Got it. Uh, this is an interesting one. So uh, would you rather build something that a few people absolutely love or rather you'd build something that many people just like? No, I would rather, I would rather have a product where people just like it because there's always room. Got it. Um, so yeah. for startups, since uh, we have been, uh, uh, it has been a nightmare for the last two years for a lot of startup founders, uh, many startups shut down uh, due to the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, what is the one um, mantra that you would give to the startups? Uh, would it be focusing on survival? Would it be expansion? What, what is your one key takeaway? For no, it would, be, it would be pivoting. Pivoting, pivoting. When something doesn't work for some reason, you can't stick to your guns. You've got to figure out what does work. So my my mantra is figure out what, you know, to switch really fast. I mean, there was a company that was making product and then COVID came and they literally switched everything to um, making masks. And they were profitable because nobody could get a hold of masks. So it's about doing what you can to survive and pivoting in that moment. 